Good morning, good morning. You guys are talkative this morning. It's great. Uh, a lot of new faces this morning. Uh, if we've never met before, let me introduce myself. My name is Will, and uh, it's great to be here with you guys. Uh, the reason you don't see me very much is my role here in the church is uh, that of a church planting resident, and we're sp- I'm spending most of my time uh, out in the city of Manassas where we're preparing to plant a church. Um, and so I'm here a couple Sundays a month, and when I am, it's great to be here. And so if we haven't met, uh, I just want to introduce myself and uh, say it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, just an aside that's unique to this morning, um, i actually uh, going to run through the message, really excited for what the Lord has for us this morning, uh, but I have to jet a little bit early after I'm done, uh, which isn't the, the standard way I normally hang out and get an opportunity to talk with you guys. And that's particularly difficult because this morning's topic is complex, um, and, and sometimes requires some dialogue and some conversation. Um, and if that's the case, feel free to reach out to me via email or any of the other leaders in the church if there's something that's said that sparks some interest or even vitriol or that you have some questions about. Um, so that's just a little footnote for how things are going to go this morning, but it's great to be with you. Uh, we've been in Matthew chapter 6. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount And we've been walking through uh, a section on hypocrisy. Jesus has been calling out this issue where people seem to have an outward motive that's disconnected from their inward desire. And the first way that that manifested itself was through charitable giving. And then we looked at the way it can manifest itself sometimes through the way we offer prayers. And under this section on prayer, Jesus has been walking through uh, what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And that's where we've spent the past couple weeks. Um, And it's uh, been been a great past couple weeks. Um, And then we land on actually one of the most complex uh, sections of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of that prayer this morning. So I appreciate Justin going on vacation and leaving that one for me. Um, but, uh, but that's where we'll be this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, we actually have some folks handing those out. If you just raise your hand and if you want to read along with us. Uh, and we're going to spend our time this morning in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be starting, uh, our, our focus is going to be on verse uh, 14 and 15. Uh, but I'm actually going to read uh, starting in verse 9 just to Uh, capture the entirety of the Lord's Prayer here. So uh, let me um, read this, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin. Starting in verse 9, Jesus says to us, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Lord, I recognize this morning that you are here. You are present with us. The Lord of the universe, the living God, is here in our midst. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes and our ears to hear from you. Sometimes the issue of you speaking to us from your word isn't a matter of you being absent or uh, the the message not having relevance for our lives, but our very uh, ability to receive what you're wanting to say to us. 
And given the complexity of what we're going to talk about this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our hearts uh, to, to your word. That we would see and hear and believe all that you're speaking to us this morning. Lord, two things are true of every single person in this room. We have all sinned, and we have all been sinned against. This is our responsibility when we sin against others, and living in a fallen world, we are the recipients of others' sin as well. And forgiveness, Lord, is, in light of this predicament, the most precious um, thing that we could receive. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, the, the perfection of your forgiveness for us. And I pray that you would motivate us then to subsequently forgive those who sin against us. Lord, I pray for those in our room this morning who don't know you at all. And the idea of having sins forgiven um, is uh, about the least relevant thing in their life right now. I ask that you would um, lift up the forgiving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and reveal it to uh, my friends in this room this morning. We love you, Lord, and we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was December 7th, 1941. There was a man named Jacob DeShazer. He was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and he remembers distinctly sitting and peeling potatoes, which from what I see in movies is apparently a common thing in the military. I don't know. Maybe if you're in the military, you can explain why. But he was sitting, uh, peeling potatoes, and he remembers hearing that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. He got up, threw his potato against the wall, and vowed that those who were responsible for this attack, attack would feel the vengeance of him and the United States. Some months later, he was on some of the very first bombing runs into Japan in response to what had happened that day in December in Pearl Harbor. And on one of his very first bombing runs, he ran out of fuel, his plane crashed, but he survived, and he was taken as a prisoner of war into a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp, which uh, all Japanese prisoner of war camps during World War II were known as some of the most horrific places on the planet. And Jacob DeShazer spent 40 long months in this prisoner of war camp waiting for the war to end. He experienced uh, torture, starvation, and and pain that I'm sure uh, most of us in this room could never even begin to comprehend. But shortly into his time there at this, this camp, he came across a Bible He wasn't raised in a Christian environment, and so that uh, had typically been pretty relevant for him, but he started reading it and came upon a a passage in Romans 10 that completely changed his, his life. And he recalls at that moment in that camp calling on the Lord to save him, and it changed everything for him. Because the people that he once hated, he now found himself having a loving pity for, especially as he saw the war beginning to turn against their favor and come to an end. Later, Jacob DeShazer was freed and came back to the United States, uh, but loved the people of Japan so greatly that three years later, he returned as a missionary to Japan after the war to bring the gospel to the people that he once so so aggressively hated. During his time while he was out uh, sharing the gospel, there was one man in particular named uh, Mistu Fushida, who uh, took a pamphlet that described Jacob DeShazer's story. He went home and read it, and during that time gave his own life, Fushida did, he gave his life to Jesus. 
What's so significant about this man, Fushida, is that he was the commanding, uh, uh, the commander who was the one who called uh, the initial Pearl Harbor attack. He's the very one commanding the pilots who drove their planes over to to Pearl Harbor that made Jacob DeShazer so enraged. This is the very same person. And these two men placed their faith in Jesus, forgave one another, and became close friends and did ministry together through Japan. That's an incredible story. It's a real story. You can look them up on YouTube later and find more about it. But my question for them and for us this morning is how is that possible? First, how is it possible for DeShazer, after everything he went through at this prisoner of war camp, to return to Japan and to serve those people as a missionary? How is it possible for these two men who were once uh, as, as far apart as they could be, they hated each other, How could they join together in a friendship in this manner? How could forgiveness like this take place? My friends, what we'll see this morning is that all of this was possible because there is an inseparable link between the the forgiveness that we've received in and through Jesus and the forgiveness that we subsequently offer to those who sin against us. There's an inseparable link between the forgiveness we've received and that which we give. It simply isn't possible for someone to receive the vast, extraordinary forgiveness of their unspeakable sin before God and to remain unwilling to forgive those who sin against them to a much lesser extent. And yet, if we're honest, all of us are guilty of this. When we're wronged, we all suffer from what I'll call a form of forgiveness amnesia. Even though we've experienced the miracle of our own forgiveness and had our entire debt before God wiped completely clean, somehow, when we're sinned against, we forget all about that. All of us, when we're in the the heat of an offense, when we're experiencing the the sting of someone's sin against us, even their abuse against us, the forgiveness that we've received in and through Jesus seems to all too quickly go out the window. And what's so sad about this is what this sort of forgiveness amnesia produces in our lives. For one, it leaves crucial relationships marred and broken. Close friends and family are kept at a distance, and the fellowship that you once enjoyed is gone. I wonder how many relationships, even represented in this room or outside of here, at this moment are at best really awkward or at worst altogether shattered because of an unwillingness to forgive. And not only do our relationships suffer from our forgiveness amnesia, but personally we do as well. Individually, how many of us are walking around with just the baggage and the hurt of, of, of a previous sin that weighs you down and limits you because you're still holding on to that grudge of something that's happened to you in the past? And what's even more sad about that is that the way that we give ultimate victory over those who have hurt us is by allowing the pain to still walk around with us today. The consequences of their sins still reap an effect in your life because you're still carrying that that around like a heavy bag that limits you and holds you back. But you can turn the page on that chapter in your life and be set free from your past hurts by choosing to, to let that go through forgiveness. 
It's through the forgiveness that Jesus calls us to in this passage in Matthew 6 that we can be set free. And please don't hear me saying that this is easy. This is one of the most complex topics in the New Testament. It's not like just a switch that you flip and forgiveness all of a sudden happens. Some of you, I know, have been hurt so severely and damaged by people in your past that a pursuit towards forgiveness may be one of the hardest things that you ever do. But because there's an inseparable link between the forgiveness that we've received and the forgiveness that we offer, uh, those who have sinned against us, we, we can. And he not only commands us to give Jesus in this passage, but he literally empowers us to do it. Because when we encounter the life-altering forgiveness given to us in Jesus, we find therein the freedom and the power to forgive others. And so as we consider this morning, I want to look at a story. As we consider forgiveness this morning, I want to look at a story in Matthew 18 that's going to help put all of this into perspective for us. It's going to help bring some definition to this complex passage that we just read and hopefully provide us some help under this category of our personal forgiveness. So let me invite you to turn over to Matthew 18. And we're going to start in verse 21. And uh, let me just give you a few road markers along the way that are going guide, to guide our time. As we walk through this story, I want to ask three questions. The first thing I want to ask is, what does God's forgiveness of us look like? And after we've asked that question, I want to ask, what does our unforgiveness towards others look like? And then lastly, I want to discuss what, what forgiveness and practice looks like. What does forgiveness look like practically? So what does God's forgiveness look like? What does our unforgiveness look like? And then practically speaking, how does that play out? So let's start here in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. It says that Peter came up to him and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother? Uh, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter comes to Jesus at the beginning of the story. Obviously, forgiveness is a big theme in Jesus's ministry. And it was commonly held in that day that there was about a three-strike rule as it pertained to forgiveness. You could forgive someone once, twice, but on the third time, Forgiveness was to be withheld. They'd cross the line. It wasn't to be offered anymore. And so we see here Peter, I would imagine, thinking that he's being rather benevolent. What if we upped the ante to seven? If my brother sins against me seven times, then should we still forgive him? Jesus responds by saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It could also be translated seven times 70 times. So he takes Peter seven and says, no, 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 you don't understand how forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. Uh, seven times 70, if you're slow at math like I am, equals 490 times. Which if someone were to sin against you that many times, surely you would have forgotten or lost count somewhere along the way, which is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. In the kingdom of God, when we offer forgiveness, it's offered so freely and so radically that we can't even keep count of the times that we offer it to people who sin against us. And I'm sure that this was a hard thing for Peter to, to bear as it is for us. And so Jesus offers him a story that puts this radical forgiveness in its proper perspective. He continues in verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts uh, with his servants. Um, when he, he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
So he, he tells this story of a king who uh, decides to settle some debts that are owed to him. And uh, he calls on his servants, and these probably weren't lowly servants. It was common in that time for kings to set up governors that could be described as servants all through a region that would be responsible for bringing in the tax income uh, to the kings who were there. And so he calls all this money to be owed, him, owed, owed to him. He calls those debts to be settled, and he starts summoning servants. But there's one servant in particular who owes him an inordinate amount of money. Uh, he says he owes him 10,000 talents. Let me put that in perspective for you. So in, in, the, in the economy of that day, you had denarii and you had talents. One uh, denarii was about a day's wage. And, and get this, it took uh, 6,000 6, denarii to equal one talent. 6,000 days wage to equal one talent. And it says that this guy owed 10,000 talents. That's an extraordinary amount of money. Someone put it in perspective into modern times. It might be in the neighborhood of like seven or eight billion dollars. If you walked in here with credit card issues this morning, rest assured at least you're not in this first servant's predicament. This is an extraordinary amount of money, but what's significant about that is not just that he owes money, but what kind of behavior led to this guy owing seven or eight billion dollars? What must he have done? What sort of wicked behavior led to that? And so he's hopeless. He has no chance of ever repaying it. And so he, he's, he uh, goes to the king and just is banking. Perhaps the king will have uh, mercy on me. And the king's response to him in his request is absolutely extraordinary. It says that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He forgave the whole thing. There's no payment plan. It's not spread out over 50 years. He doesn't ask for anything. He simply says to him, motivated by mercy, I forgive you. And notice that he not only looks over and forgives the amount of money that was owed, but he also forgives the foolish and wicked behavior that led to it being incurred in the first place. He says he forgives it. He overlooks it. And in forgiving the debt, notice this as well. It's not like the king just goes out and prints more money, like everything is okay. By not requiring him to repay, the king himself suffers personal loss. In forgiveness, it's the person who offers forgiveness is the one who has to pay the price. They take the toll of what's happened on themselves. One author described it like this. When you cancel a debt, it does not simply disappear Instead, you absorb a liability that someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects from someone's sin and you release that person from liability to punishment. And so the king decides instead of punishing this one, he'll take the liability on himself and he forgives him. And in this story of this 10,000 uh, talent debt being erased, we have a portrayal of what yours and my forgiveness looks like. Because every last one of us owes a debt that we could never pay. We were created by God Almighty to, to offer the entirety of our lives up for the worship of his perfections and to enjoy him in his glorious attributes. Yet every single one of us has turned from that call and pursued other things to worship instead. And sin against a holy and perfect and eternally valuable God requires a punishment of eternal worth as well. 
And we all have this record of debt. And there will come a day when the king calls to settle his accounts. And we've got no means to repay it. And the only hope that we have is that we could plea for mercy, asking that our debt of sin be forgiven. Now, I hear some of you saying to me in light of this that maybe I'm being a little bit radical. I mean, is this sort of forgiveness really necessary? Maybe particularly if you would describe yourself as a secular person, you're not really uh, normally in Christian circles. Do I really need forgiveness like this? I mean, I try to treat others as, they would, as I would want to be treated. I have, uh, you know, decent relationships. No one's perfect, but is, is forgiveness like this really needed? I'm not quite sure that I actually need to be forgiven. And the challenge with that is that someone who's in the public eye right now recently said something very similar. And he goes by the name Donald Trump. And regardless of where you happen to stand politically, I'm willing to bet that you could go down a list of a few things that Mr. Trump might want to seek forgiveness before God from. Because don't we all know people who, in their own eyes, they see themselves as just about perfect? We're all too good at at exalting ourselves and in our own eyes thinking that we're actually better than we really are. Because if we judge ourselves by our self-made standards, our, our own subjective standards, then yes, none of us need forgiveness. But my friends, the bar that determines whether or not you need forgiveness isn't determined by us, but by God himself. And before that standard, every last one of us falls short. Just like in this story, we all need forgiveness. We all owe God a debt we could never pay. And what he's done to remove that debt from us is the most extraordinary act of forgiveness ever offered in the history of the universe. Our debt doesn't just get overlooked. It isn't brushed under the rug. It isn't just written off. It's paid for through the very death of God's only son. As the king, God takes the weight of our debt on himself and he suffers the loss for it. Colossians 2.14 says that we've been forgiven of all our trespasses and that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal, legal demands, this, speaking of Jesus, did by nailing it to the cross. Paul paints a picture of the debt we owe being nailed to Jesus on our behalf and that being the means through which we're forgiven. Because the story of the king and his unforgiving servant isn't just a parable, but is a picture of what's truly happened in and through Jesus on our behalf. And in his death, you and I get to experience the sweet freedom of forgiveness as our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus pays the debt we owe by standing in our place and calling out on our behalf, Father, forgive them. This is what our forgiveness looks like. This is what our forgiveness required. So in light of that, what does our unforgiveness towards others look like? What does our unforgiveness towards others look like? If you still have Matthew 18 open, you'll see in verse 28 what happened after this interaction with the king. It says, But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, something very similar we just heard, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So what did this guy do immediately after this mountain of debt was just forgiven? It says that with rather immediacy, he left the king and went and found someone who owed him some money. He found a servant that owed him a hundred denarii, which, like we said, a denarii is a day's wage. That's not an insignificant amount of money. If someone owed that to you, you might seek them uh, out to pay that back. But in light of what has just happened to this guy, how could he be so harsh with someone who owes him the money? This man was unable to pay it, and so he throws him into debtor's prison, a place where people could earn a very measly wage, and this type of punishment was used for the most egregious of debt offenders. And do you see why this is so horrible? Why this is so absurd? He just had 10,000 talents forgiven, and he's concerned with 100 denarii. It's like he just had Mount Everest wiped off his record, and he's going and finding someone that owes him a pebble. The Atlantic Ocean has just been forgiven, and he's concerned of a tiny little puddle. We would think that someone who had their very life hanging in the balance because of their own foolishness and their own sin, and yet had that debt of inestimable proportion forgiven, that he would walk away from that meeting with the king as the most forgiving and gracious and patient person on planet Earth. And yet, we see that he has a case of forgiveness amnesia. He's forgotten so quickly the great act of mercy he's received through his forgiveness, and now he's unwilling to forgive those who hold debts against him. And this, my friends, is what our unwillingness to forgive others looks like. It's absolutely absurd. It's ludicrous. How could that happen? Do you see how it ties into the warning that we just read in Matthew 6? Let me read it again for you. In verse 14, it says that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, why this is complex and difficult is because it sounds like Jesus is saying the way you get forgiveness from God is by forgiving others who sin against you. That's what it sounds like he's saying. But remember the order of the story that we just read. The king forgave an unpayable debt, and then subsequently the servant should have forgiven a much smaller debt in light of it. He's not saying here that our forgiveness of others is the cause of our forgiveness from God. But get this, this is key. Our forgiveness, from, from, our forgiveness of others is the result of our forgiveness from God. And it's an absolutely essential result. It's, an in, it's inseparable from it. When we've been forgiven so much, it subsequently, uh, subsequently has to happen that we would forgive others. The point is, how could someone who's received so much be unwilling to forgive others so little? Those who have received such an extraordinary pardon will subsequently be willing to pardon others who have wronged them. And my friends, uh, let me make no mistake about it. The warning in Matthew 6 is actually very significant. It's very severe. We have to understand that remaining unwilling to forgive others, if that's the posture that you're in, you should have serious questions on if you've ever even been forgiven in the first place. Jesus' point here is that those who persist in an unwillingness to forgive and no willingness to offer mercy should fear for their very salvation. 
This warning to those of us who would say, there is no way, there is no how, I will never forgive that person. That attitude cannot remain in a Christian who's experienced such incredible divine forgiveness. And so what does unforgiveness look like in your life? Is it constantly bringing up something from the past in a relationship that you have? Is it always assuming the worst in those who have sinned against you? Is it spending time daydreaming and contemplating what you, could, what you would do if you had the chance to repay them for what's happened to you? I don't know what it looks like for you, but, but the point here is that this type of attitude has to be repented of. It has to be turned from. Because those who have been forgiven so much must also in return forgive others. I'm not saying that this is easy. This doesn't just happen automatically. It's really hard, but the Lord does indeed require it of us. But the good news for us this morning is that the Lord not only commands us to forgive, but he actually gives us the power to do it. Because I I don't think the force of what's being said in either here in Matthew 18 or in Matthew 6 is forgive or you yourself won't be forgiven. I don't think that's the heart of it. I think the point is Jesus is calling us to look at the mountain of debt we owed because of our sin and look at the miracle of our forgiveness and then all the debts that are owed to us will slowly shrink to size and you will be able to find the strength and the will to forgive. The biblical pattern of forgiveness is to gaze upon the grace we've received in Jesus. And as we're gazing upon that grace and being in remembrance of our own sin against him, in that moment we find the strength to forgive others who sin against us. Colossians 3.13 captures this perfectly. Paul says, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Here's the key. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I remember um, being in uh, around the first year of our marriage. I've been married about seven years now uh, to my lovely wife. And uh, we got married pretty young. And by the end of that first year, man, things were getting pretty rough. We were in a pretty difficult spot. Um, I provided plenty of sin that contributed to that. Chelsea provided plenty of sin that contributed to that. And uh, there was one issue in particular that I was having a really hard time with Chelsea on. Um, that was bringing major division into our marriage. And uh, what was so difficult about it is one of those things that just happened repetitively. So sometimes it's easy to forgive once or twice, but this 70 times 7 rule gets really difficult. And it, it, was, happening, it was happening frequently. And just to be honest, it was one of those things where, like, we're sleeping at different parts of the house. There were nights she went and stayed with her parents. Like, it was just an ugly season for our marriage. And I, I remember hearing and just being pulled uh, to call, uh, this call to to forgive. And I just remember saying to myself, man, there's no freaking way I can forgive this again. There's no way. And I remember going and meeting with the Lord um, that same night and having this verse in Colossians 3 pressed on my mind, forgive as you have been forgiven. And at that moment, I met with the Lord and was reminded of the mountain, the unspeakable mountain of sin that I had before him that made this little thing absolutely, like, so insignificant. And at that moment, remembering the love of Jesus that pursued me at my absolute worst, and from there, finding the freedom 
and the power to pursue her in grace and to, to find forgiveness in that moment. It was in looking at the grace of God that then motivated me to be able to offer forgiveness in that moment. And there's been plenty of times where she's had to do the same for me. And, and let me just encourage you guys for your married or maybe there's another relationship dynamic in your life, um, not to keep that withheld or, or, or held back, but to, to invite people into that. That was really significant at that moment in our marriage. That might be where some of you are at today, if you're honest, even last night. But there's grace for you in community with this, just to be real about it, to find help. So let me just encourage you with that as well. But, but uh, the, the biblical pattern of forgiveness is to encounter the gospel, encounter what Jesus has done on our behalf, and then the forgiveness to others that, that we're called to offer becomes much more easy. So that's, that's where the motivation comes from. But let's, let's talk a little bit more practical in this, a, this aspect of uh, forgiving one another. Um, since we're talking about forgiveness, it might be a good idea for us to talk about how we should actually go pursuing forgiveness if we've sinned against someone. So there's a good way, there's a positive and healthy way to pursue forgiveness, and then there's a way that uh, is almost not asking for forgiveness at all. Let me set up a scenario. Let's just say my kids are driving me crazy, asking them to stop, they don't stop, and I yell at them uh, to stop, and it's an ugly moment, there's tears, all that kind of stuff, and a little while later I'm convicted, and I go to them, and I say to my kids, kids, listen, dad's sorry for yelling at you, um, but when you run around the house like that, and uh, you know, when you uh, don't listen to what I say the first time, you know, it just makes it really hard, uh, so, but I shouldn't have yelled at you, will you please forgive me? Is that asking for forgiveness? That is in no way asking for forgiveness. That's blame shifting and actually saying that what I did wasn't that big of a deal because there were some factors that you had that, that contributed to it, right? So, so a few characteristics that make a pursuit of for, forgiveness a lot more healthy are, are these three characteristics. One, uh, they're, they're short. Two, they're, they're to the point. And three, they are absent of the word but. The, the three-letter word but is not found anywhere in that sentence. It would go something like this. Kids, Dad yelled at you earlier, and, and God calls him to, to, to speak kindly with his words. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? That, that's what a healthy pursuit of forgiveness looks like, whether it's with kids or whoever. But it's, it's short, it's absent of, of excuses, it's absent of blame shifting, and it owns the sin that we've done, and it brings, them, brings it to the table and sincerely asks for forgiveness. That's, that's what a healthy pursuit of forgiveness looks like. Um, but how do we give it? And this is the, the most complex area in this, in this discussion on forgiveness. The, the first thing that I want to say is there's some instances when we're giving forgiveness where things simply just need to be overlooked, and it doesn't require a big confrontation or anything like that. These are smaller, more trivial things that maybe annoy you or bother you. Um, but, but here's what Paul says to us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain uh, the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There are some things that are, that are on, a, on a trivial, more trivial scale that it just requires us to bear with one another, uh, to, be, to find the grace of God uh, that's been extended to us and to bear with one another. Um, but there's also instances where I think it would be helpful to actually engage in a verbal interaction where you offer forgiveness to someone as a gift. Um, there are instances where, where maybe you should sit down and discuss the, discuss the issues that are going on. An example of this might be something that's ongoing, that's causing a lot of pain or heartache for you. 
Uh, it might be uh, something that was done in your past that you've never really been able to get over and it still weighs on you today. Um, it might be something that's putting your very relationship in jeopardy. I think in an instance like this, it would be helpful to sit down and have a conversation about what's going on um, in which you offer, uh, offer forgiveness uh, verbally to, to someone. Um, now, this is not a chance to extend anger and frustration and wrath when you sit down in that conversation. You don't sit down and say, you've done this and you should have known better and it's caused me so much pain and I want to punch you in the head for it. Like, that's not so much dealing out forgiveness as much as it is, I think, dealing out wrath and, and anger because remember that in forgiveness, it's the offended party that chooses to receive the debt upon themselves. And we require no payment or restitution for it. One author described um, forgiveness as as giving a gift that the offended pays for. Giving a gift that the offended pays for. You're saying that you've done something that's caused me hurt, that's cost me. I'm choosing to offer you this this, uh, gift of forgiveness um, that I will not ask you to pay for. Um, And in, in offering that gift, we're releasing them from what's happened. And we're saying, I won't hold this against you. I won't bring it up again. You're free from this sin. It's in our past. And what we're not saying in that moment, that what happened to you is okay or that it was no big deal. That's not what we're saying in that. That's the furthest thing from what we're saying. We're not trying to minimize the hurt. Um, what, What we're saying is that what's happened to you is terrible, but you're choosing to relinquish it and pay that debt instead, which is why sometimes when you're in this type of interactions, it's actually better to say, I forgive you than to simply say it's okay or it's no big deal and to just kind of write it off. Because in that phrase, when you're saying I forgive you, you're acknowledging the significance of what's happened, but you're completely releasing them from it as well. And so there's some instance, I think, where this type of interaction may be required. And honestly, this is a, could be a community event as well, just because, uh, I'm not saying the entirety community needs to know about it, but just involving some other people in it because it's very complex This idea of offering forgiveness to one another is very complex and having some other people speak into it may be helpful as well. Um, The last thing I want to say about forgiveness is what do you do about people who are unrepentant? What do you do about people who are unrepentant? This is the most difficult uh, part of this and it's a reality of living in a fallen world. Um, And what an approach to forgiveness looks like in an instance like this isn't always clear or easy to understand. Um, There are some instances where people continue to sin and they really don't care about it. They don't care what you have to say about it. Uh, They may disagree with you about it. Or maybe they can't even be reached. They've done something in the past and maybe they've even passed away and forgiveness isn't even, a conversation on forgiveness isn't even possible with them. Hear me on this. I think even in instances of unrepentance, there's some controversy on this, but I think even in instances of unrepentance, the call on us to have a forgiving posture still remains. But hear me on this as well. That doesn't mean that the forgiveness in that instance necessarily looks the same as it would with someone who's repentant. Won't necessarily look the same. There may be some relational dynamics Um, that remain unrestored or even at a distance in situations like this. Um, But just as a helpful way to think about how to regard them in situations like this, I think Paul has some helpful words for us in Romans 12, uh, starting in verse 18. And maybe you can meditate on this a little bit more later, but um, this this is what Paul says there. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For for so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's just uh, some principles, some guidelines for how we could engage or how we could treat someone who remains unrepentant for their sin that they've given, that they've uh, brought against us. The first is that uh, we never repay evil for evil, but we let the Lord handle that. We, we, we trust in the reality that God is just and we, he, will handle, he will hand out punishment where appropriate. And then the second thing that he, he can give us to that we can apply simply is that where forgiveness is rejected, we can offer kindness in its place. Paul says, uh, care for their well-being even as they, if they act as an enemy. The last thing I would say, just reiterating, is especially on this aspect of unrepentance, is to, to if this is something you're really struggling with and you're just, you hear the Lord's commands that, that you're called to forgive, but you don't know what that looks like in your life, just to involve some other people in that. I'd personally be happy to meet with you. I'm sure Justin or any of the other leaders of the church would be happy to, happy to meet with you on that as well. Um, because in instances like this, it is complex and difficult. And what forgiveness looks like for you might just need to be something that's talked through and prayed through and pursued together. Um, so let me lastly encourage you um, with that. Um, in closing, we have been given so much forgiveness through Jesus. And friends, there is an inseparable link between the forgiveness that we've received and the forgiveness that we're called to give. And as we come to the table, it's a, it's a meal of remembering what we've forgiven. But as we prepare to come, I want to read to you a um, conversation that an old Puritan drafted up that uh, pictures the dialogue that would have happened between the father and the son as they were looking on the debt that we owed for our sin. So let me just invite you, if you're taking notes, just, just kind of set it down and just listen to this dialogue as you prepare to come to the table. It starts with God the Father saying to the Son in reference to us, My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son replies, O my Father, Such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, the son says, you shall require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer for it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds, but, if, but my son, if you undertake it for them, you must reckon to pay every last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son replies, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. 
And though it prove a kind of undoing for me, though it impoverish me of all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it for them. This is the picture of what Jesus has done in taking on the debt that we could never pay on our own, but out of his unspeakable and immeasurable and eternal love for us, he took the, the, the debt on himself when he died on the cross. And as we come to the table to communion, we're coming to remember that's what's happened for us. That's where the root of our forgiveness for, towards others is found. And so... Um, Maybe you need to hang out in your seat a little bit before you come to the table this morning and just allow the Lord to deal with you on some of this stuff. Maybe there's some unforgiveness that's present in your life that you need to deal with him on. But remember as you come to the table uh, that this is what's been done for you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, let me just say, um, please don't come up to the table this morning. And, and that's not to be exclusive or to leave you out. People are moving all over during this time. No one's even going to notice that you're sitting. Um, but hear me on this. The reality is you don't need to come to this table. The, if you're not a Christian, the deepest and most pressing need in your life at this moment is for forgiveness. For your own sin against God to be pardoned and wiped clean. And let me tell you this morning, it is yours. It is available to you right now. And it comes to you by believing that the Son of God took your debt upon himself and suffered in your place. In your place, condemned, Jesus stood. And so instead of coming forward to the table that won't really mean anything to you if you don't believe this, I want to invite you to receive forgiveness in its place, to turn from your life of sin and to trust that Jesus has given himself for you. When you guys are ready, we've got uh, two tables in the, in the front and two tables in the back. The rest of you guys can come forward and take uh, communion. And let me just reiterate, this is a complex topic. Please email me if you have any questions or if you want to connect about any of this or any of the other leaders in our church. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you have taken our debt upon yourself. Praise the one who has paid our debt and raised this life up from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you that though we would have never been able to pay you back, you took it fully on yourself. And Lord, I pray out of that reality that you would help us all to deal with the unforgiveness that's in our life. You'd help me to deal with the unforgiveness that exists in my life. It's just absurd that we would be unforgiving people in light of all that we've been forgiven. And so, Lord, we entrust these things to you now. We thank you for this time. Let your word now take root in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.